Scripture reading is from Matthew 6 and then also Matthew 18. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. From Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went out and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Let's pray really quick. Jesus, you are the best. Um, and everything that we are, everything that's good about us, is because of you. Um, any good choice that we make is because you give us the grace to do it. Lord, so much of this life that we want to live after you, glorifying you, loving you, um, is, uh, is just the growth of the seed of repentance that you, by your grace, planted inside of us. So, Lord, I pray that, um, I pray that you would be glorified in all of these words this morning um, and that you would move and change us, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been so fun coming here, Sundays, being with you all, um, feeling like I'm really a part of this thing uh, that you have, which is a beautiful, beautiful church. Um, and uh, anyway, it's not something that I take lightly. I just want you guys to know that it's a huge, huge honor and privilege to be here. Um, I hold in my hand the most important part of the most important machine in my house, you probably can't see it. It's squishy. If I, if I squeeze it too hard, it's going to spring out of my hand because 
it's a spring. Um, and it just fell on the floor. It's actually not the, the thing, that, but it is a spring. Um, this spring, or one like it, uh, is the most important part of our dishwasher at our house. Our dishwasher is an amazing thing with four kids uh, who are very dirty. Um, the, uh, this, this machine gets used at least twice a day. Some of you maybe use yours once every three days. Good for you. Uh, we, um, we are sponsored by Cascade at our house, at the Wright Family House. Um, it is, uh, it's great. But uh, the amazing thing and how I figured out how important this spring is, is that this spring is the spring that causes the, uh, the dishwasher detergent dispenser to open. You know, like you turn the dishwasher on, I think, I've, I never did the thing where you put a camera inside a bag and try to film what goes on inside the dishwasher. Maybe some of you did this when you were kids. I didn't. Um, but you turn the dishwasher on, I think it just sprays water for a while. And then, at a certain designated, God-ordained moment in the dishwashing cycle, the, the latch opens, and the pod of dishwashing detergent, which these days it's a pod, um, it's all those different colors put together, and um, we did have a child try to eat one one time, it's okay. Dishwashing detergent is actually a lot safer than clothes detergent, we found out from the poison center, so just a, just a freebie for you. Um, it, you need to call Dr. Yuck if if it's the, one of the pods for washing clothes, but the dishes is, is mostly okay. Um, you should still take that seriously, though. Um, so anyway, at some point, the, the dishwasher detergent comes out, and it starts shooting uh, frothy uh, soap all over the dishes that are in the dishwasher. And y'all, a dishwasher is a miracle machine. All right, like you can put all manner of filth and, and dirt and, and soiled dishes into your dishwasher and they will come out sparkly clean and you can actually eat food off of them again. Unless the dishwasher pod doesn't click open because your spring has lost its springiness. In which case, the dishwasher is no longer a dishwasher, it becomes a dishwarmer. Your plates get hot, right? But the transformation doesn't happen to the dishes. In fact, a lot of times the dishes that you put in there come out worse on the other side if the dishwasher detergent doesn't activate. If the active ingredient, the cleansing agent, doesn't get loose inside of the dishwasher. Like, if the dishwashing detergent doesn't come out, that peanut butter that was on the knife becomes brown concrete. And don't even get me started on quinoa or oatmeal. I mean, which, like, we'll give it credit. Those are ancient grains. Like, we don't have the technology to break them down anyway, but they need to get off. But if, if the, your detergent doesn't come out, like, you're going to be breaking your fingernails trying to get that off. And because you probably don't know this, let me explain to you what happens to Greek yogurt when it's heated up to high temperatures with no detergent. It becomes white paint. You don't know that because your dishwasher works. <laughs> Without the cleansing agent bubbling and being shot around the inside of the dishwasher, all of that magnificence of this miracle machine is lost. And in fact, the dishes come out the other side a lot of times worse than they went in. Wouldn't it be a tragic thing if the same thing happened to the church of Jesus Christ?
Forgiveness is the active ingredient in the church of Christ. Forgiveness is the cleansing agent in the church of Christ. The forgiveness that has to happen to us and through us. But without forgiveness bubbling, churning, frothing around, being sprayed across the body of Jesus Christ, us receiving forgiveness and giving it to one another, without that, we have a mild interaction, an external impact on each other and the world around us, but we do not have the power of transformation. Forgiveness is everything to both the Christian and the church. As Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, which uh, we prayed together a moment ago, he only instructs them to ask for four broad things. Daily sustenance, our daily bread. He tells us to ask for forgiveness. He tells us to ask for spiritual safety and the return of the king and his kingdom. Spiritual safety, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. Those are the things he tells us to ask for in the prayer. And without forgiveness, you could be forgiven <laughs> for thinking that the, the, the three things, daily sustenance, spiritual safety, and the return of the king, that you would be thinking that that was a complete list of what God was asking us to ask for. But Jesus puts forgiveness right alongside those things. He puts it right alongside of asking for the meeting of our physical needs, the meeting of our spiritual needs, and the meeting of our existential meta-narrative needs. You know, that we are finding ourselves with a king and a kingdom, and that the end of all things will turn out good. Like, that's what Jesus is telling us to ask for. And then he puts forgiveness right in there. Um, if we were to think about the rest of this sermon, and if you want to take notes on this, uh, forgiveness is the beginning of our stories. It is the along the way of the story, and it is the end of the story. Forgiveness is the beginning of the story, the along the way of the story, and the end of the story. When I was 15 years old, my dad got a gift for me, wheels. My dad got on eBay, which was fledgling on this internet thing uh, back, in, back in the early 2000s. He got on eBay, and he purchased on eBay from the Utah Department of Agriculture a 1995 blue Ford Bronco. And he bought a one-way plane ticket. He bought the thing for $5,000, which with inflation now is worth about $5,000. He flew across the country and he drove this big blue bowling ball of love back to me. The Utah Department of Agriculture had a unique color for their vehicles. It was a bright cerulean kind of uh, hot spandex blue. Um, and you can now envision that because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it was this blue in Greensboro, North Carolina, where I grew up. My friends could never say, hey, I thought I saw you driving on the road today. You either saw me or you didn't because it was the only one in the entire city with that color. Bright blue on the outside, white hard top back on the back. It was not one of like the smaller Bronco 2s. This was like an O.J. Simpson sized Bronco. Like this was a big one. Um, and just some more details about it. Uh, it, was, it was tricked out. It had rubber mats on the floor instead of carpet so you could just hose it out. Um, it had vinyl seats. It was a stick shift. The, speedo the, the speedometer would start bouncing at about 80 miles an hour. You could make it do that, which I did. Um, 
one of the it had roll down windows we uh we it didn't even have a cassette player so we did one of those cool things and this is going to be a flashback for a lot of y'all we actually bought like a new uh a new face for it you know one of those that like flip down that you could put the cd in and so that you could protect it you could take the face out with you when you left some of y'all remember exactly what i'm talking about and some of you have no idea but if you know you know um so we, we did that. We had to replace some of the speakers so that sound would actually come out. There was one electric window. It was the back window. And so you could roll, crank down the front two windows and then use the electric for the back and roll three windows down and listen to Blink-182 on a nice summer day um, with, your, with your long hair flowing in the wind. I'm so jealous of the Anderson boys. I used to. I used to. Um... My dad, uh, the, the kicker on this thing is that there was no center console. The thing that you put your maps in and, and everything, it was, just wasn't there. There was actually a hole in the floor where it was bolted in at some point, but somebody took it away. Um, and so while you were driving, you could walk to the back seat, <laughs> which I did. The reason my dad got me uh, such a sweet car is because he knew I was going to ding it up. And I didn't disappoint. I hit everything with that car. I hit other cars, I hit lampposts, trash cans, deer, mailboxes. But one night I really outdid myself and I hit a church. <laughs> to be fair, it jumped out in front of me. <laughs> but truly, uh, while I was driving on a different side of town, I'd been hanging out with some friends. Cell phones had just become a thing and uh, one of them had dropped uh, her cell phone in the seat in the back and I could hear it buzzing as I'm driving and I didn't know uh, really where I was in that part of town so I thought I'm going to be a responsible young adult today. I'm going to pull over into this parking lot here and, uh, and I'm going to find instead of just walking to the back and, and getting it while I was on the road. Um, and so I did the responsible thing. I pulled over into the parking lot, put the car in neutral, and walked to the back seat to get the phone. I, I, got, I found the phone. It was like kind of under the seat. Did one of those where you kind of get a cramp while you're reaching for it. And I, uh, I, I flipped the phone open, and I said, hey, I have your phone. A couple of details. I did leave the car in neutral. I did not use the emergency brake because, quite frankly, I didn't know what it was. Didn't think it was an emergency. So, uh, and I found out as I answered the phone and said, hey, I've got your phone, that the, the parking lot that I pulled into was actually on a slight slant uh, down towards a full brick building at the bottom, which happened to be a church. Um, and uh, there at like 1030 at night, uh, my car was rolling down the hill towards the church. I was in the back seat where you're not supposed to be. I jump and try, did this soccer slide tackle thing to try to get to the brake, but I didn't get there fast enough. And like a millisecond before my, my foot hit the brake, it slammed right into the corner of that brick church. And my face kind of hit the, the windshield. I got out. There were no security cameras. I looked um, at the church. It was not dented because the church is built on solid rock. <laughs> and... Uh, but I looked at the front of my, of my Bronco, and it looked like a hot dog bun without said hot dog. Uh, it was just creased uh, on, the, on the front bumper in the worst way, like a taco with no filling or like an open book. Um, so I looked around. Uh, the church wasn't injured. The Bronco was, but I drove it away. I drove home and uh, kind of pulled into the driveway. It was a full moon summer night. 
Um, and, uh, and I went inside, and uh, for some of you, here's a freebie. You can use this later. I uh, kind of tiptoed upstairs, got next to my dad as he was asleep in bed. My dad's an attorney. And I said, Dad, good news. I'm okay. <laughs> and he kind of woke up, and he said, you're okay. I was like, yeah, I'm okay. I just wanted to tell you. And he was like, what happened? I was like, I, I hit the Bronco into something. He was like, what'd you hit? I was like, a church. And uh, he kind of rolled out of bed. He was like, well, let's go take a look. So we walk outside, full moon, go down, look at the Bronco, crease in the front. And he kind of looks at it and makes this Tim the Toolman Taylor grunt sound. And, uh, and then he did the most amazing thing. Just started walking back into the house. And so as a teenager, you're wondering two things when you wreck your car. One, am I in trouble? Two, who's going to pay for this? Number one, probably not in trouble. He's walking back inside. But I had to know the answer to number two. And so I called out to him as he reached the front porch. I was like, Dad, I got to know, who's going to pay for this? And he looked and he goes, I don't know. We'll talk about it in the morning. And you know what? We never did. We never talked about it again. But the thing is, is that we sold the Bronco a few years later to somebody who lived at a lake and needed, us, needed a vehicle to pull their boat in. And when we sold it, we sold it for like next to nothing. Because the thing about forgiveness is when there's an offense, it doesn't just dissipate. It doesn't just go into thin air. Somebody has to pay. And so in that moment of knowing that somebody was going to have to pay for the Bronco, I knew there were three options. Well, actually, I knew there were two, but later discovered there was a third Option number one, my dad could pay for it. Option number two, I could pay for it, which is a bad option. Uh, and option number three, somebody else could pay for it. So we could have sold it at full price to somebody else who would have essentially been buying the new bumper themselves. Or I could pay for it, or my dad could pay for it. But the offense didn't just go away. And so four years after I, after I turned my front bumper uh, into an, an open book, um, we paid for it. Because when an offense is committed, forgiveness is not just this magic potion that causes things to disappear. Every forgiveness costs something. That's the beginning of your story with Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of your story with Jesus Christ, is that you coming to have some sort of glimpse. If you remember this, back to the time, like that hour you first believed, right? Amazing Grace, the hour you first believed, you walked down front, you stood up at the Christian camp, you were having a conversation, and you, you realized that God is two things, or that God is one thing, and that you are one thing. That God is holy, and that you're not. And that you've offended a holy God. And that you know that something is broken, and you did it, but that all that you can do is to be sorry you can't be forgiven. And yet, you discover the cross, which bridges the gap between those two great truths of God's holiness and your sinfulness, that God's loving, like, his perfect love and your need for him. And that you realized that in the face of those two diametrically opposed truths that are the gospel, that the cross bridged the gap between those two and that you could be forgiven. Your story with Jesus Christ started with forgiveness. You may have forgotten that because it's been a long time and you think your story with Jesus now is a story about devotion and a story about discipline, but in fact, it's a story of forgiveness. That's where it started. That's where you were overwhelmed. That's where you were crying and you didn't know why necessarily. That's where you felt this spiritual hug. 
that your great need for forgiveness was met. And that's where your story with Jesus starts. Do you remember what you were? Do you remember, do you remember what this book says about you? It's not nice. You were dead. You were dead in the sins and trespasses which you once walked following the prince of the power of the air, the course of this world, the, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once walked, gratifying the passions of your flesh, the sinful desires, doing whatever you wanted, and you were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. That's what we were. I so I don't want to tell you that. I want to tell you seven steps to have a happy life and smile and get my picture on the front of a book at Walmart. But that's what this says about us. We were dead. We weren't like treading water in the middle of the ocean and blowing bubbles, getting ready to go under, and then Jesus in a helicopter comes down and sweeps us up, and you're like, oh, Jesus, thank you. I was about to go under. You were a bloated carcass at the bottom of the ocean, spiritually speaking, and he made you alive. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. By grace, we've been saved through faith, not by works that we would boast. Are you serious? forgiveness. Do you remember what it was like to realize that you could be forgiven, that you were forgiven? Sweet Moses, that is good. And that's where your story with Jesus starts, with forgiveness, at least as far as our agency is concerned. You didn't find Jesus. He found you. You weren't looking for him. He was looking for you. And he was bringing an arsenal of forgiveness with him for everything that you have ever done. I might, you might think right now, yeah, but then what? Forgiveness is the beginning of the story. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. As. We forgive. Forgiveness is the beginning of the story, but forgiveness is the along the way. As is an along the way word. As they were walking, as they were eating. It means while you're while you doing something. Forgive us as we forgive. Look, certainly for us personally, your maturity as a Christian is not simply an attempt to lessen your need for forgiveness. Rather, your maturity as a Christian is a deepening understanding of your need for forgiveness. You don't grow out of your need to be forgiven. When's the last time that you deeply felt your need to be forgiven and then were forgiven in such a way that it just broke you? Our personal experience of forgiveness, that which is done to us, must grow along the way. But forgiveness, Jesus teaches, isn't just something that's done to us. It's something that's done through us. And we must forgive others because Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us as we forgive others. As good Presbyterians, we're like, that doesn't sound very gospel. That sounds works righteousness. That sounds works. I didn't say it. He said it. As. So you want to throw up your hands because now you feel like, hey, Cliff, that was great. You brought us back to forgiveness. That was awesome. But you, add, to forgive that person, to forgive him, her, them, Cliff, you don't know what they've done. How is that fair? You don't know. 
what they've done, what he's done, what she's done to me. You don't know how much it hurt. You want me to forgive them? You obviously don't know what they've done. Hey, Christian, you obviously have forgotten what you've done. Our supporting scripture today is the parable of the unforgiving servant where Jesus blatantly paints a picture of one who is forgiven greatly and yet does not forgive. And the results of that choice are not good for him. For us, there's the forgiveness that comes to us, but it's also the forgiveness that must go through us. I mean, Jesus says at the end of, the, at the end of this parable, and this should just absolutely terrify us, in a, in a holy reverence sort of way. Jesus says at the end, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, so in, in case Jesus is, is worried that we're gonna think that uh, the metaphor has to do with something else, he adds a clarifying point here at the end. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Again, that's not what I say. That's what the book says. Now, I think it would be good, though, for us to go through a little bit of what forgiveness is, biblically speaking, and what it's not, because there's a whole lot of pop theology around forgiveness, a whole lot of sayings. In fact, the most famous sayings around forgiveness probably don't come from the Bible at all, but they sound like they do. So let's talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Forgiveness is, biblically speaking, canceling of a debt, or refrain from demanding payment. Forgiveness is a relinquishing of revenge. It's saying, I will no longer seek to punish you in word, deed, or thought. It's breaking this cycle of revenge, which is not a natural thing, by the way. I mean, pretty much every war and act of violence in the history of mankind is an act of revenge on something else. Don't believe me? Study the Vikings. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It isn't just something that happens. You decide to do it. Like I said, most of human history and most of nature is red in tooth and claw, like Andrew Peterson says. And it seems to me that she's an outlaw. This is not the way of the world, and it doesn't just naturally happen. You actually have to decide to forgive someone. And forgiveness is a relational transaction. It happens when one side repents and the other side removes the moral debt that is owed. In which case you, by seeking or by ending your search for the other person uh, to pay for what they've done, you absorb the pain. Because like we said, forgiveness costs something. It always costs something. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. I think we as Christians, we don't want to forgive people because we don't want to be naive. Like, we don't, we don't want to appear just stupid in the eyes of the world, and we don't want to keep getting hurt. I get it. But forgive, so forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. My dad forgave me for wrecking the car. He didn't, like, hold that over my head. And in fact, when I graduated from high school, I got another car, a new car, a Forerunner, which was way nicer than the Bronco. He didn't like hold that over my head forever, but there were still consequences. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences, and when you forgive someone, there can still, you can forgive them and there still be consequences to their actions. Forgiveness is not anti-authoritarian. Continued lawlessness does not get negated. 
All right? I forgive my kids every single time that they disobey me, every single time that they uh, offend me. And when I forgive them, it doesn't put me on their level or them on mine. I'm still their dad. It's not, it doesn't upend authority structures. Forgiveness is not, and this is important, the absence of judgment. Forgiveness doesn't make us naive about what someone is or consistently does. All right, like the whole forgive and forget. When the Bible says that Jesus, for, like that God forgets our sins, it's not talking about he gets amnesia about our sins. It's not like he's walking around heaven today and he sees his son and he says, son, I know you died for something for Cliff, but I just can't remember what it was. That's not, that's not, it's, the forgetting means it's not being held against us anymore, that the price has been paid. We don't have to forget the hurt that's been done to us, but we do need to cease to hold it against people. The new Phariseeism of our culture is, is anti-judgmentalism, all right? You cannot judge anybody, judge anything. Don't judge. Judgment. I don't want to be judgmental. Jesus actually tells you to judge. At one point, he says, stop making false judgments and make a right judgment. Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before swine, which implies that you're judging something a swine. All right? We, Jesus says, be judgmental. Put that on a t-shirt. Like, <laughs> don't. <laughs> but it doesn't make us naive. Forgiveness is also not a therapeutic transaction, and this is really something that I think that you need to know because this goes a little bit, I mean, I love this band, Need to Breathe. They just came out with a new album this past week. I love listening to it with my boys, but there's a song on it that says, when you forgive someone, and the lyric is, when you forgive someone, you set yourself free. To an extent, but not biblically speaking. Like, when you forgive someone, it's not a therapeutic transaction. You don't do it for yourself. You do it for the Lord. And you do it for the other person. Yes, for, uh, harboring unforgiveness is like swallowing poison and expecting somebody else to die. I believe that. That's right. But when you forgive someone, you're not setting yourself free necessarily. Maybe you are to an extent, but that's not it. You are obeying the Lord. One thing that forgiveness is, is that it is expected of us. One thing that forgiveness is not, is that it's not optional. For followers of Jesus, we are commanded to forgive I know that this is taking us back quite a ways to adventures in early literature, but have you ever noticed that, or I'm sure that you do notice, um, the first lines of every, of every story has to deliver two facts, setting and characters. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, has it ever occurred to you that that's exactly what he's doing? He is setting the setting and the characters for the story that we find ourselves in. I'm a big, narr I'm a big meta narrative kind of person. It's the postmodern in me, um, but, uh, but Jesus is setting that reality for his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is the setting. It is a current reality. Heaven is not an oh glory by and by one day type thing. It is for uh, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is on earth as it is in heaven, is, present tense, is, the kingdom of heaven is a real thing. It is a now thing. And we as believers live our lives to see heaven break in. You, I, Damon said it so like haphazardly at the beginning of his thing. He said, hey, we exist to see the kingdom of heaven expand in Lake Norman region. Like that, that is an, that's awesome. Like that's what we do. 
And that kingdom of heaven is a now thing. And the main character is the Father, our Father, that we find him in heaven. We have a Father. Our Father is a king. He is our Father, but he's still a king. And in a king in a kingdom, that's why we can ask for things. Because in God's kingdom, you can ask for daily bread because in the kingdom, there's, there's enough bread. So you can ask for it. You can ask for daily bread because in God's kingdom, there's bread. You can ask for spiritual safety because in God's kingdom, you are safe. You will not be led into temptation. You will be delivered from evil in God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is an effective kingdom. It will win. It will come back. His will will be done. We can ask for those things. And we forgive because that is the law of the kingdom. That is the king's ordinance. Show of hands. Does anyone here not pay their taxes? Don't raise your hand. That would be a trap. Of course, you all pay your taxes. Now, show of hands, who likes paying their taxes? Same number of hands. <laughs> so why do we pay our taxes if we don't like it? It's because if you don't, they'll get you. They'll get you. It might not be this year. It might not be next year, but you'll get a letter. It says you're the subject of a random audit, and you owe the government. It's because there is a power that undergirds the system that we fear, that we respect. That's why we pay the taxes. Martha Stewart can make anything look good. Give her a rotten apple, she'll slice it up, she'll put it in the oven, then string twine through it, and it's, it's the centerpiece of her Christmas tree. And don't even get me started with what she can do with a cake. She can make anything look good. Not tax evasion. It doesn't matter how you spin it. Unforgiveness is the ordinance of the king, and to be unforgiving in the king's kingdom is to violate the king's ordinance, and it doesn't matter how good you make it look or how justified it is. In this word, as, as we forgive those who get sin against us, this word as means that one who does not forgive is one who has not been forgiven. But y'all, only the one who forgives can expect to be forgiven, and also only the one who is forgiven can be expected to forgive. And North Cross, you have been forgiven, and so you must forgive along the way of our stories. And then finally, forgiveness at the end of the story. It's not only where our stories start, nor, it is, a, nor is it a function confined to this dispensation of time, but it will be at the end of the story as well. You ride on a metro transportation, there's a final destination. It's usually called the end of the line. And the end of the line, for those of us who are Christians, is heaven. A direct, personal, and lasting encounter with the one. The story that started, the story that started with forgiveness will pull into the end of the line and we will know our full salvation we will feel the full weight of all that we have been forgiven for and the great powerful love that made forgiveness possible. And we cross over to where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. And y'all, the death to which you understand and experience the love of Jesus Christ for you will be the degree to which you're transformed by it. The depth to which you understand the love of Jesus Christ for you will be the degree to which you're transformed by us. And for us weary sinners lost and ruined by the fall, the love of Jesus is prototypically experienced by us in forgiveness. 
And when we reach the last page of the earthly chapters of this story and cross into eternity, where we will be fully known and we'll fully know, we'll feel the full force of all that forgiveness that has happened to us to bring us into that undeserved glory. But what about the forgiveness that goes through us? What will that look like in heaven? I have to assume that it too will be perfected. And I wonder about what that will look like. I have my own imaginations of what uh, the people and, and instances that have hurt me most will look like in light of heaven, but I don't want to prescribe something called a theodicy to you. Because each one of you is carrying an incredible amount of hurt from walking through this broken world where people have just been awful to you, where situations have just been awful to you. And for me to prescribe a theodicy, which is a philosophical justification for the goodness of God in the face of evil, that would be for me to step into your kitchen. And I don't want to do that, but what I do want to suggest to you is that our hearts will be forgiving perfectly in glory, in heaven. We will, as we have been perfectly forgiven, we will perfectly forgive. And what will that look like for you? Through the deepest possible pain, through the worst betrayals, through, the, the, through those people that just get you so much that if you drive in the car and don't turn on music, you find yourself arguing with them and they're not there. What will that look like in light of heaven? Because it will look like something. Corey Ten Boom writes uh, in her book, The Hiding Place, at the end, she talks about the ministry that she had after coming out of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Her family were Christians who, uh, who were Dutch, who hid Jews, and they were found out and put into concentration camps where Corey was the only survivor, I think. Um, but she had this incredible ministry afterwards, and she writes about it. Many of you have probably read this. But it's this incredible picture of what perfected forgiveness might look like. She says this, The place in my ministry that where the hunger was the greatest was Germany. Germany was a land in ruin, cities of ashes and rubble, but more terrifying still, minds and hearts of ashes. Just across the border was to feel the great weight that hung over that land. And it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since my time in the camps. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive this man. Give your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. 
while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Perhaps we will be able to perfectly forgive in heaven because the perfect forgiver who has forgiven us perfectly will be standing right behind us empowering us to do it. And perhaps we might even see that great forgiveness pass through us to others in this life. And we'll be able to sing, my sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.